if the uh, voters care more about well, whether the uh, member of Congress agrees with them on abortion or on guns or on taxes or on whatever it is, then they care about whether the member of Congress is ethical, then we're going to get a Congress that reflects that. I would hope that the public would take ethics more seriously and say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm not going to support someone who has shabby ethics simply because I agree with them on the issues. The ethics is at least as important, if not more important, than the underlying issues. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, certainly government ethics has been in the news lately, given what's happening right now in Congress and what has happened with the Supreme Court and what has happened with our former president. There's certainly a lot to talk about in that area. And today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss a wide-ranging area of ethics with an expert on the topic. We're joined today by Richard W. Painter, the former chief White House ethics lawyer and the S. Walter Ritchie Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. From February 2005 to July 2007, he was associate counsel to the president in the White House counsel's office, serving as the chief ethics lawyer for the president, White House employees, and senior nominees to Senate-confirmed positions in the executive branch. His most recent book is with Peter Golenbach, titled American Nero, The History of the Destruction of the Rule of Law and Why Trump is the Worst Offender. Welcome to the show, Richard. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we have an awful lot to talk about and certainly no limit of subjects to cover. But let's start with your background as a former chief White House ethics lawyer under President George Bush. What were your duties? Well, the chief ethics lawyer in the White House is responsible for the compliance with the federal government ethics and statutes and regulations for the White House staff and also the president's appointees to the executive branch agencies. Uh, were uh, confirmed by the Senate. So everyone from the chief of staff, the White House, to the Treasury Secretary, the Defense Secretary, the undersecretaries, all of those people, when they uh, originally are appointed by the president or nominated for the positions in the case of the uh, uh, executive branch jobs, they would discuss with the ethics lawyer their uh, potential conflicts of interest, uh, financial conflicts of interest and other issues that might yeah, the appearance uh, of uh, compromising uh, their fiduciary obligation to uh, the government. I'll give you an example. For example, Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, came in from the top job at Goldman Sachs. He was the CEO of Goldman Sachs and had about five or six hundred million dollars worth of Goldman Sachs stock, which he clearly could not keep if he was going to be the uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, promulgating regulations that would affect the investment banking industry, including, of course, Goldman Sachs. So I told him he had to sell the stock, and we worked out an arrangement for him to do that and to put the proceeds into conflict-free assets, uh, mutual funds and U.S. Treasury securities and so forth. That's just one of many examples of the type of project that the White House ethics lawyer has to undertake to assure 
if we have a government that's uh, free of conflicts of interest. There are a lot of people who would believe that the government really doesn't have much in terms of ethics, you know, the cynical among the population. But where are the foundation of these laws? Where do they come from? Well, the uh, financial conflict of interest statute is the provision, the specific provision that would prohibit the uh, Treasury Secretary from having stock in a bank or an agriculture secretary from having stock in an agricultural company and so forth. Uh, this uh, provision applies to all members of the executive branch, all United States government employees in the executive branch, except unfortunately to the president, the vice president. They're not subject to the financial conflict of interest statute. Donald Trump reminded us of that repeatedly when he was president. Gee, I'm special. I don't have to follow this rule. And that's unfortunate because then that does give the impression that the government is permeated with conflicts of interest if you have a president who will not abide by the rules that apply to everyone else. And unfortunately, the same provision does not apply to members of Congress. So members of Congress can own stock and in healthcare companies while voting on healthcare legislation. So we do have ethics rules, and this is an important financial conflict of interest statute, but the problem is it doesn't apply to everybody and does not apply to the elected officials, whether it's the president, the vice president, or the members of Congress. And of course, those are the people who the public reads about the most in the press, uh, including members of Congress or buying and selling stocks on a regular basis. Uh, and that, that does lead to quite a bit of cynicism out there. Right. And how would you compare the range of government ethical rules to the range of ethical rules that lawyers have to follow? Well, I just finished uh, teaching a course at the University of Minnesota Law School on uh, ethics for government lawyers. So I teach the students the ethics rules for government employees and then the rules for lawyers, and we compare and contrast them. Uh, and I would say the lawyers tend to be bound by stricter rules in some instances with respect to what they can do, what they can't do, particularly after they leave government service. Uh, lawyers are not supposed to represent private sector clients in connection with the same particular party matters they worked on in government. Uh, other government employees can provide some behind-the-scenes advice on those types of matters, but are prohibited from actually lobbying back to the government on those matters. So there's some differences of the rules for lawyers being somewhat stricter. Uh, but once again, the lawyers who get the papers a lot, including recently the election lawyers hired by our former president, Donald Trump, we have some lawyers who want to violate some of these rules on a regular basis. And then that brings lawyers, of course, into disrepute. Right. And who regulates? Is it the office that you were involved in that regulates the entire government? Or are there individual ethical strains within each branch of government? As the office I worked in was the White House Ethics Lawyers Office, which really just provides advice to the president, the president's appointees. Of course, if somebody doesn't do what we say, uh, we would hope that the president would take appropriate action. But we did not have enforcement capacity. We were in the White House advising the president, advising the president's staff, talking to the government agencies. With respect to enforcement, there's some uh, rules that are the statutes that are criminal. For example, this financial conflict of interest statute is criminal. If you own Goldman Sachs stock and you are at the Treasury Department and you start to regulate or deregulate the investment banking industry, uh, you do violate 18 United States Code 208, a, a criminal statute, and the Justice Department could prosecute you for that. Another example is someone in the Defense Department who is uh, negotiating for employment with a big contractor while working on their contract. 
Uh, we had a big scandal about 15 years ago. Someone from Boeing was doing that and gave Boeing a great big multi-billion dollar contract when negotiating for a job with them. That violates the same statute. It's a criminal statute, and that person was prosecuted. There are other regulations that aren't criminal statutes. For example, the gift rules. You're not supposed to take a gift from a prohibited source that someone has tried to influence your agency. You can't take a gift over $20, and um, you're not supposed to use your official position to endorse uh, products or political candidates. That's the so-called Hatch Act. Uh, those provisions are not criminal. So... You know, there's a finding of a violation either by the United States Office of Government Ethics or the Office of Special Counsel or the various government entities that look into compliance with these ethics regulations and statutes. If it's not a criminal statute, though, someone's not going to get prosecuted. What you expect is that if there's a finding of a violation, there would be employment action. Someone would be terminated. Uh, we had to terminate some people in the Bush administration for violating ethics regulations. Uh, but once again, that gets back to what's the attitude at the top. Uh, because Donald Trump, when Kellyanne Conway, for example, repeatedly was violating the Hatch Act by endorsing political candidates on the White House lawn or attacking Democratic candidates on the White House lawn, clear violation of the Hatch Act, uh, using her official position to influence the outcome of an election. And the Office of Special Counsel wrote a letter to the White House saying, look, he's clearly a violation. The presumptive penalty is firing. Uh, the president didn't do anything at all uh, and indeed said she was doing a great job. Well, if that's the attitude, uh, then we're going to have people violating the Hatch Act or the gift rules or the other regulations with regularity. And you would think that there would be some checks and balances there where there would be one branch of government that could enforce against the other. Is that not the case? Well, it should be that way. Now, that all depends on what's going to happen over Congress. If Congress is controlled by the president's political party, there's sometimes a little bit of oversight, but not too much. Uh, we had some oversight of the Bush administration when the Republicans controlled Congress, but there was a heck of a lot more when the Democrats won control of Congress in 2006, and the subpoenas started flying around. And then that's where the uh, congressional oversight gets serious, when the president's party loses control over one of the houses or the other. Under President Trump, the first two years, I don't think we heard crickets from Congress. They were still investigating Hillary's email or something. Once the Democrats got control of the House, they ratcheted up the investigations. We've seen some active House investigations now. I'd expect those investigations of the Trump administration to go away. But of course, the Republicans who will take control of the House once they choose a speaker, it may take a while, but they, uh, they uh, probably start investigating everything going on in the Biden administration. Meanwhile, the, the Senate, it's controlled by the Democrats, uh, may be more interested in, in pursuing some of the things that uh, we still need to look into about what went wrong in the Trump administration. Right. Well, Richard, at this time, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. 
filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by former chief White House ethics lawyer and professor at the University of Minnesota Law School, Richard Painter. Right before the break, we were talking about Congress's investigations. One that's come up recently is George Santos. What's happening with that, and what role does the president's Office of Ethics have to do with that investigation? Well, I don't think the White House ought to get involved in that. That involves a member of Congress. If he's committed any crimes in the United States, he ought to be prosecuted by the uh, Department of Justice of the States. You know, merely lying about your background in order to get elected to Congress, I don't think is a crime, but there may be other crimes. He's also has some uh, legal difficulties down in Brazil, apparently. But I, I think it's best really for the White House to stay out of something that involves a member of Congress. It's a different branch of government. What's going to happen here, I don't know. I don't know what else he's lied about and whether he could be exposed to uh, criminal charges in the United States for something else. I mean, a lot of this stuff patting a resume to run for Congress or saying stuff about your mother that's not true. I mean, uh, you know, it shows he's a dishonest man. I, I don't know whether that's going to lead to um, any type of a criminal prosecution or his resignation from Congress. I, I don't I don't see that happening anytime soon. Well, it wouldn't be the first time. I believe that in Pennsylvania there was a congressman elected when he was in jail. So it all comes down to what the folks in those representatives want. What happens in the circumstance where you have, as you mentioned, shifting parties between Congress, where you have the Democrats take over one session and the Republicans take over another session, and there's been some funding issues. Back in 2017, there were some funding issues with your office, and it looks like there may be again. Well, uh, it's it's going to be a, a problem. The, the um, uh, Congress does control the purse strings, so... We're gonna have, we're gonna see what uh, what's gonna happen and have what the interaction is between the uh, presidents, you know, the administration and uh, particularly the House of Representatives. Uh, we've got some people who want more power in the House of Representatives who are really uh, quite uh, extreme in their political views and quite confrontational, and so we have yet to see where all that goes. But once again, ethics should be independent of all that. We should. I mean, uh, they have the same approach to ethics, whether it's somebody in, in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. The same rules should apply to everybody. Do the same rules apply even in the other branch of government, the Supreme Court? It sounds to me as if there are no ethical rules there. Well, that's a, that's another uh, set of problems. So the, you have uh, different rules for Congress than for the executive branch, different rules for the president and the vice president than for everyone else in the executive branch. And then you get to Supreme Court justices. Uh, there is a statute that prohibits a, a justice of the court from participating in a case in which they have a financial interest or the spouse has a financial interest or any other case in which their impartiality might be reasonably questioned. 
the problem is there is an enforcement of that statute uh, by the court. The justices uh, just make up their own mind when they're going to recuse and when they're not going to recuse. And that's the problem we have with the court right now. So it isn't that there aren't any rules. It's that the rules aren't being enforced uh, because the justices as a group are not willing to hold each other accountable. They say, well, each justice is just going to decide this for themselves, whether they need to recuse from the case. And, and I felt quite strongly that Justice Thomas needed to recuse from a number of cases having to do with the January 6th insurrection, given the uh, involvement of his wife and some of what happened there. Well, Professor Painter, as we sit around the proverbial cracker barrel in, in uh, the general store here, what would you propose to solve all these problems? Well, different problems have called for different solutions. With respect to the Supreme Court of the United States, I, I do think the justices need to hold each other accountable and be willing to examine each other's conflicts and not just simply leave it to the other justices. If that doesn't work, uh, Congress is going to have to think about a statute that will put in place an enforcement mechanism with respect to conflicts on the court. With respect to members of Congress themselves, though, they have to uh, be willing to uh, regulate their own conduct. Congress never passed a statute to prohibit buying and selling of individual stocks by members of Congress. They talked about it. Uh, Speaker Pelosi opposed a statute that would prohibit members of Congress from trading stocks and having financial conflicts of interest. So here we've got a Congress that for decades has said the executive branch employees commit a crime if they own a stock and participate in a government matter that affects the stock. But a member of Congress would say, okay, we had a number of proposals to get the members of Congress out of the trading of stocks um, and the financial conflicts of interest that come with that. Uh, Speaker Pelosi eventually agreed to that legislation very reluctantly, but then nothing happened. Um, they just said, well, we've got different bills we're considering. So I think Congress needs to be held accountable. Uh, this is a problem for the Republicans and the Democrats. They talk a big game on ethics, and uh, when it comes to regulating their own conduct, they are taking you seriously. Uh, how do we even go about doing that? I mean, when you compare the polls that are run about the current popular issues that Congress needs to address. The economy is typically up there, maybe some defense once in a while, but I, I'm pretty confident that ethics is at the bottom of the barrel there. Well, that's uh, something that needs to change. And uh, if the uh, voters care more about well, whether the uh, member of Congress agrees with them on abortion or on guns or on taxes or on whatever it is, then they care about whether the member of Congress is ethical, then we're going to get a Congress that reflects that. I would hope that the public would take ethics more seriously and say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm not going to support someone who has shabby ethics simply because I agree with them on the issues. The ethics is at least as important, if not more important, than the underlying issues. Well, let's take a note from your book, American Nero. Why do you say that Trump is the worst offender of the destruction of the rule of law? Well, and I wrote published that book in 2020, uh, the spring of 2020, before we had the complete meltdown uh, after he lost the election, although many of us saw that coming. Donald Trump, in many ways, was unprecedented uh, in his approach to the law as a president and as a presidential candidate. And remember, as a presidential candidate, he accused a judge of being biased against him simply because the judge was Mexican. Uh, well, the judge was actually an American of Mexican heritage. Donald Trump uh, has repeatedly sought to undermine the Constitution 
And just recently, he talked about just getting rid of the Constitution. In other words, well, I lost an election or I think I have an election stolen from me. We ought to just get rid of the Constitution. Uh, he is, is not someone who believes in representative democracy and the rule of law. He believes in himself. Uh, we've seen this in the way he runs his businesses, the way he ran his White House, the way he ran his campaigns, and in his uh, post-presidency. I mean, just repeated flagrant violations of the law. And this uh, business of taking classified documents on down to Mar-a-Lago is just yet one more instance in which he has shown that he is not someone who gives a hoot about the law and compliance with the law. Well, Professor Painter, we're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with Professor Richard Painter from the University of Minnesota Law School. We've been talking about how Trump just kind of wrangled the rule of law and destroyed the Constitution. What are the consequences of that kind of behavior in terms of the future of American government? Where are we going from here? Well, one, uh, Donald Trump has lowered the bar substantially when it comes to compliance with ethics. And so whenever I've had any criticisms of the Biden administration, I've had a few with respect to conflicts of interest and ethics. The answer is always, well, what about Donald Trump? Uh, uh, Donald Trump is much worse. And in the answer is, of course. I mean, I think President Biden is an enormous improvement over Donald Trump with respect to ethics and ethics compliance. Uh, but there are still problems. There are issues that need to be addressed. But after Donald Trump what went through there, uh, a lot of people are exhausted about hearing about White House ethics scandals or conflicts of interest in the White House. And so there's going to be the temptation to, to just simply look at the other way. And, and that is going to lead to a, a deterioration of uh, ethics uh, compliance across the board in both Democratic and Republican administrations. And the other even more serious problem is that uh, Donald Trump appears to have committed a serious crime, a sedition, insurrection, uh, after he lost the election in 2020. And there's overwhelming evidence of a conspiracy to reverse the results of the election through various means, pressure on the Justice Department to declare the election a fraud, pressure on the vice president to... Uh, act illegally and um, uh, declare Donald Trump the winner, even though Donald Trump had lost, and even a plan to send the military into some states to redo the election. This was an attempted self-coup, an autogolpe, if you refer to it as Latin American countries, a self-coup uh, by an elected head of state who decides he just wants to stick around for a while longer and is going to do everything within his power to do that. And uh, Donald Trump attempt at that, a self-coup in early 2021. And if we don't prosecute that, if they, he's not prosecuted for that, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that type of thing happens again. You know, in 2015, on this particular podcast, 
we mentioned the fact that we thought that if Donald Trump was elected, it may very well be the last election the people get to vote in. What needs to be put into place to prevent this from happening again? Well, one, we need to have an independent counsel statute brought back. I know that the independent counsel law that we had for about 20 years after Watergate uh, was allowed to expire by Congress. Everyone was exhausted after Ken Starr's investigation of Bill Clinton. It's supposed to start out with an Arkansas land deal and ended up with sex in the Oval Office. But whether we revive the independent counsel statute as it was written or make some changes to avoid a runaway independent counsel, we got to have something. We can't have a situation uh, where a sitting president or a former president is allowed to commit crimes and not be prosecuted. Uh, the Justice Department needs to reverse its position that a sitting president cannot be prosecuted. There's no constitutional basis for that. The Justice Department concluded that in 1973 and again in 1999 or 2000, and then again in 2019. And, and of course, the Justice Department lawyers who reach these conclusions are all appointed by the president. So it's no surprise they come to this conclusion that a sitting president can't be prosecuted. But there's, there's no basis for that. I wrote a lengthy article on that topic with Professor Claire Finkelstein from the University of Pennsylvania. We found no, no authority for that proposition. Uh, no one is above the law, including a sitting president uh, or a former president. And crimes of presidents need to be prosecuted just like crimes by everybody else. How do you balance what apparently is a willingness of people to elect someone who is intended on being a, essentially a dictator? How do you balance that against the people that need this prosecution to occur in order to put the presidency back in line? Well, we, we have criminal law for a reason. And criminal law uh, constrains people's conduct, uh, whether it's financial conflicts of interest, that and those rules should apply to the president, the vice president, members of Congress, or even worse, sedition and insurrection. But we cannot have officials in our government, whether appointed or elected, who are allowed to engage in criminal conduct. And uh, the Justice Department needs to have an independent counsel's office that is capable of investigating the president or people close to the president who commit crimes, or members of Congress who commit crimes. Uh, uh, we cannot tolerate criminality uh, in our government. Do we need a fourth branch of government, just an independent branch, that's the, the ethics and the enforcement branch? Well, I would urge that we integrate ethics and enforcement in the existing three branches of government. So I mentioned the, in the Supreme Court that the justices should hold each other accountable for compliance with the recusal provisions. In the Congress, they should enact a law that prohibits a member of Congress from trading individual stocks instead of having mutual funds and other broadly diversified investments like most of the rest of us. Financial conflicts of interest in Congress should not be tolerated. If someone wants to be a day trader, they should do that. Let someone else run for Congress. So we could tighten up the ethics rules in Congress by an act of Congress. And uh, once again, the executive branch uh, should be able to police itself with an independent counsel's office, though, the independent prosecutor uh, embedded in the Department of Justice. Now, the, the uh, post-Watergate independent counsel statute had a arrangement where a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit would appoint the special prosecutor and then oversee the special prosecutor's office, the independent counsel's office, and that was a blending of uh, using the judicial branch and the executive branch authority. We could revisit that idea or come up with something else. 
but we need to bring back checks and balances with respect to all three branches of the government. Uh, no one uh, should hold uh, high positions in the uh, judiciary, uh, Congress, or the executive branch and be able to say, well, I get to do anything I want. Do you think that there's sufficient enforcement or sufficient bringing these issues to public light from the fourth estate, from the media? Well, the media... Are they doing their job? Yes, <laughs> The media has often been very effective, sometimes slow, though, at bringing public attention to conflicts of interest and other problems in our government. Unfortunately, the media has become a lot more polarized than it was maybe 20, 25 years ago. I remember when I was growing up, we'd watch the television be ABC, CBS, or NBC News, and, and then public television news, if you want to get a little more of the in-depth intellectual type of analysis. Uh, but now... The choices uh, include uh, Fox for the right, MSNBC for the left, and CNN vacillating in between. So you have some news media outlets that are getting their ratings up by telling the audience what they want to hear. And so if you turn on Fox News, and you'll hear about every conceivable scandal in the Biden administration, real or imaginary, and nothing about January 6th. And then you'll turn on MSNBC and... and you know, you'll, you'll hear a lot about Trump and his bombs, you won't hear anything about criticism of the, of the um, Biden administration. Now, I'm not equating the two. As I say, I think the Trump disaster was by far the most egregious situation we confronted for a long time. But if you have a media that is is divided between Democrat and Republican media and people listening to TV stations and radio stations, talk radio, that's telling them just what they want to hear, and that one side is good and the other side is evil, that's not necessarily the type of public scrutiny by the media that we ought to be having. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, Professor Painter, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to invite you to share your final thoughts and provide your contact information for our listeners to reach out to you. Well, I um, continue to be uh, optimistic that in the United States uh, we can improve our government and uh, elect people to office who uh, have higher standards of ethics and um, that we can encourage our Congress and our executive branch, our courts, to police themselves and to police other branches of government so we have appropriate checks and balances. I uh, look forward to continuing this conversation. I can be reached at the University of Minnesota Law School. My email, rpainter at umn.edu. And you can also follow me on Twitter, rwbusa. Well, great. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Greg. Well, Professor Painter has certainly laid out for us a way to solve these problems and a significant number of ethical problems throughout the range of government from pretty much from top to bottom. It's difficult to get voters' attention on a topic like this, and it certainly has been difficult to get media attention on a topic like this, given the polarity that exists between the right and the left in the media and not many centrist-style media outlets that provide this type of a review. But here on Lawyer to Lawyer, we do. We take these issues, and today's one is one that needs to be solved from the top to the bottom. We need more statutes. We need uniform enforcement. As voters, we need to elect people unlike George Santos and more like Jimmy Stewart. When you go to Washington, let's do the job the right way.
Well, that's it for today's rant on today's topic. Let me know what you think. If you like what you heard today from Professor Painter, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at the Legal Talk Network where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.